God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Such a mystery, there is no truly sufficient analogy in all creation for the truth that God is one, but God is three. The, the, minds of, the minds of men have always fallen short. Words have always failed to, to reach the magnitude of what that, what that truth means. That one substance, one nature, one being, co-equal for all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that all things were sent Proceeded from the Father. The Father begetting, the Father sending. And that all things through the Son, that the Son was the one that was begotten, the Son was the one that was sent, the Son was the one that went, all things coming through the Son, and then by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was the means, so that what we see for all eternity is all things coming from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, all things going to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. And yet, when the Son was sent, when the only begotten Son was sent, he added something to that nature. Humanity to deity. Something that had never been joined together. Even in the garden, even with Adam, the perfect man in the perfect place with the perfect God. Created in the image of God, he was not God. Only God is God. Adam wasn't God, and Adam would never become God. You don't attain to Godhood. This is a thing that had never been done before. The, the perfect uniting of the fullness of humanity with the fullness of deity. And no blending, no mutation, no change. The fullness of each. 100% God, 100% man coming together and retaining exactly what it means to be 100% God and 100% man. No defilement, no rounding of the edges. Fully God, fully man in one person. At the same time, in this coming, the Son of God emptied himself. He refused to grasp equality with God. Now, he didn't empty himself of deity. God cannot cease to be God. You don't become less God. God is God for all eternity, past for all eternity, future. At all moments, God is fully God. And so he didn't empty himself of his deity. He didn't cease to be God. He emptied himself of his rights, of his prerogatives, of his right to be worshipped as God, to be honored as God, to be recognized as God, his right to exercise his deity. His right to do anything apart from the Father's will and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he came and he said, I will live as a man. I will live as that which is fully God and fully man, the God-man. And yet at all points, I will cease. I will refuse to allow my deity to enact upon my human nature. I will rely fully on the Father, fully on the Spirit at all times. And then at the moment of his baptism, at the moment of this coronation, it was announced publicly to the world, this is the one. This is the anointed one, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the one that you've been waiting for. And so we continue this morning as we walk through just the life of Christ. I am so energized by this study, I got to tell you guys, so in, just, just to walk slowly, slowly walk through the life of Christ. It, it's, it's, it, it's that realization that you'll never, fully, you'll, you'll never fully know all that there is to know about him. That we have these glimpses, we have these pieces, and yes, we, we know him as a brother. Yes, we, we, we know him as one that loves us and that died for us, but we'll never fully grasp all that it was until he returns and makes us perfect, as he is perfect. So go ahead and stand to your feet as we return to uh, Mark 1. We're going to read Mark 1, verses 9 through 13.
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the, in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? And would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in the precious name of your Son that we pray. Amen. So John had been told by God when he was sent out into the wilderness, before he went to the Jordan and began baptizing, he had been told by God that there will be one upon whom my spirit will descend, and he is the one. He is the Christ. He is the promised one. He is the eternal king. He is my son, and through him the Holy Spirit will come. He will be the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit while you're the one that baptizes with water. And so up to this point in the story, when we combine these three synoptic gospels, we've had some pretty incredible testimony about the person of Jesus Christ, about the identity of Jesus Christ. You think about the angel Gabriel coming to, coming to Jesus' mother, coming to Mary and telling him that the son of the Most High, the Holy One, the promised eternal king, he whose kingdom would have no end, that that was the baby that was going to be put within her womb. Or then you think about... You think, about, um, you think about John the Baptist within his mother's womb. As they come into the room, they come into the presence of the impregnated Mary, and immediately he starts turning flips, and they understand that this is he. This is the promised one. This is our Lord that was within Mary's, within Mary's womb. Or you, you think about Simeon and Anna as, as, as Jesus went, went there into the, into the temple at just 40 days old, how they, they recognize that this is the Lord's Christ. They know exactly who it is that they're staring at. Or on the night, of his, the night of his birth, the angels and the stars and the shepherds and, 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 and the, you know, the magi coming from the east, all recognizing exactly who this was. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the one that we had waited for for all these years. And then here at his baptism, we see as the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon him like a dove, rests upon him, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit without measure making clear that this is the one they had waited for. But there was one more voice to be heard. That's the voice that we hear from this morning. There's, there's one more voice in chapter 11. And a voice came from heaven. It said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. There's, there's, there's some translations that say, you are my son, my beloved. This would have brought back immediate memories to God's people about Abraham and his beloved son, his only son, the son of promise, his son Isaac. Genesis 22, 1 through 2 goes like this. After these things, God tested Abram, and he said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So this was God's only begotten son. This was the one with whom he was pleased. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, through that which I am pleased, through the one whom I am pleased. This was the one. And whereas Abraham's son would be spared, God's only begotten son would not be spared. He would die where Abraham would be saved. These words also echoed the, the kingly psalm. Psalm 2, verse 7 says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, si signaling that this was the Christ, this was the anointed one, this was the Messiah, this was the Son of God, and this was the eternal king. This was the promised king. Remember now, Israel was a people without a true king. They were serving under, under, under dictates and potentates and these, these, these outside people, these pagans that had come and suppressed them. 
And so as we walk through the book of Nehemiah, we talked a great deal about Israel and their misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was meant to look like and the misunderstanding of what God's king would look like. They, as a people that had been subjugated by, by foreign kings, people that ruled by force and people that ruled by, by sword, they had, they, they had come to believe that God's kingdom must be only an earthly kingdom and that what would happen was that the anointed one, the Messiah, would be recognized and that this king would come with a sword. That this king would rule the way all the rest of the kings ruled, by sword and by force. And that when he was revealed, when he showed himself, this one from the line of David, that all of Israel would take up arms and they would force the rest of the world to bow. And yet we know that that doesn't match up with what God had promised. That yes, God is sovereign over all things. And there will come a time when the fullness of his kingdom, the consummation of his kingdom, will come to earth. And there will be a physical kingdom here. But there were some spiritual preparations which needed to happen first. You know, if Jesus had come at this moment, if the consummation of the kingdom had come at this moment when Jesus came, there would not have been one single person eligible for citizenship. Citizenship into the kingdom of God comes through one thing and one thing only. Those who have placed their trust in the perfectly righteous king that fulfilled all righteousness, that died the atoning death, that came in the powerful resurrection, that we may only gain citizenship to heaven when we are joined with him in that. So if he had come at that moment, he had said, the fullness of the kingdom is here. I've come not just to usher in the kingdom, but the fullness of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom, the kingdom on earth has come now in fullness. There would have been nobody there but King Jesus. And yet he came to win citizens for himself. He came to win citizens for this kingdom. The kingdom had come, but there were no citizens yet. He had to do the work that needed to be done. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, nobody would have been eligible for kingdom, for citizenship in this kingdom. And at the same time, there was an illegitimate king here. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this generation, and he must be defeated. That the people of this world, those that would desire to be citizens of God's kingdom, that they were held captive by Satan and by sin and by hell. Now make no mistake, Satan had not wrestled anything from the hand of God. You turn all the way back to Genesis 3, and you do see that man has been under the trap, they've been under the spell, they've been enslaved to sin and hell and temptation from the evil one, from Satan. Yet even right there from the very beginning, God made it very clear that the destination for this one, this evil one, he will be destroyed. Destruction will come upon him. In fact, Matthew 25 tells us that hell was created. It was prepared as a place of torment for Satan. That Satan would not rule for one second longer than God decided to allow. He will, not, he will not rule with one more bit of power for one second longer than God chooses to allow it to be so. And so here at this coronation, here at this moment, here at this announcement, the Godhead is announcing to the world, here is your champion. Here's the one that will go for you. Here's the one that will defeat that illegitimate king. Here's the one that will win your citizenship into the kingdom. Look to him. That's what's being announced here at his baptism. This was so much greater than any earthly kingdom. This wasn't someone coming and saying, I've come to offer you the greatest things this world has to offer. He says, I've come to offer you something new, something greater, something previously unknown, that all things will be made new, things will be made perfect, that I bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and all that you count as great today will someday be destroyed by fire because I do a new thing. I come with a new thing, and I will do something great. And for 30 years, Jesus had waited for this moment. In perfect righteousness, in perfect obedience, and perfect submission to the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he had walked for 30 years, an obscure man from an obscure town, raised by nobody parents, looking just like a normal man to everybody around him. He had waited for this moment, and he knew 
Now, we don't know exactly when God knew. That's a, the that's a thing that people love to uh, conjecture about. When, when did Jesus know exactly who he was? And I don't want to get into that this morning, but we know without a shadow of a doubt that by the age of 12 he knew because we see him there in his father's house. We see him there in the temple, and he's left behind, and his parents come rushing back to find him, and here's what he says. Luke 2:49. why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And he knew that this is who he was. This is what he had come to do, that this was his father. And so here at the coronation, it's finally made public. That which has been true from all eternity, it's finally made public at this moment. He had, he had, been, he had, been, he had been crowned. He had been, this was his, his coronation, his announcement, and yet he wouldn't be allowed to rest. He wouldn't be allowed to judge uh, or to, to enjoy this coronation for long because this king came to suffer. He came to be a suffering servant. And so while he didn't, he didn't just rest there at the Jordan with John the Baptist, he didn't just rest there as a king sitting in his castle. No, he had work to do. He was going to usher in the kingdom of God. He was going to defeat the enemy. It was all going to be through suffering. And so we read this morning, verse 12, the spirit immediately, Mark loves that word, immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Mark and Matthew use the word lead, but I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke use the word lead, but Mark uses the word here drove. But either way, this isn't, don't ever get the, the, the idea that what's happening here is Jesus is going He's being forced, that this isn't a part of Jesus' will, that he's not willing to take this on, that he's resisting it in some sense. No, he was going there. He was being led by the Holy Spirit out there for this temptation. And who was it that led him? Who was it that led Jesus into the wilderness? It was the Holy Spirit. Satan didn't do this, guys. This wasn't Satan leading Jesus into the wilderness. This was the Holy Spirit. This was God. This was the work of God. This was the will of God to lead Jesus into the wilderness. And why it doesn't tell us this, I can tell you with absolute confidence, Satan didn't want this. Satan has never, ever, in the history of ever, won one single confrontation with God. Ever. This was not Satan pushing the issue. This was not Jesus going somewhere that he didn't belong. This wasn't Jesus wandering off into the wilderness and the Father going, well, I guess I must do something now on his behalf. This was God taking his son and putting him into the wilderness by the Spirit, leading him into the wilderness specifically for this purpose. That he would be then, at that moment, that he would be tempted by Satan. Because Satan knows. Satan knows. The demon knows. The demons know. They all know that this is the Son of God. They all know the power that rests within this man. We see it throughout Scripture. We see numerous times. We see where, when Jesus comes into a room and there's a man filled with an evil spirit. And all Jesus does is come into the room and we read this. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There was two, two demon-possessed men, and, and Jesus just, just walks through the tombs, and they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Or then my, my very favorite, I posted about it this week on Facebook, my very favorite in the book of Acts. There's some uh, Jewish exorcists there, and they're, they're attempting to do a work in God's name, and they're, they're calling on the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And this is what the evil spirit responds. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Satan knew Jesus. He knew who he was and he knew the power that he had. This was God forcing the issue. This was the king of the universe, the promised king, the eternal king, punching the illegitimate king in the mouth. This was the son of God exercising his dominance upon the fake king, upon he that had held the people captive illegitimately. Upon he that was evil, they, he had come to kill and steal and destroy. He was exerting his dominance right here at this moment. We read in John 1, 3 through 8, that this is the reason why Jesus came. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. I love this stuff. I love it. 
Perhaps because I'm a 12-year-old and I just love the idea of Jesus punching Satan in the mouth. Or maybe it's because as a 40-year-old man, I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded that I've been set free of the power of Satan. I've been set free of the power of sin. I'm not a slave anymore. I need to be reminded that he's already won. That every single point, there was never a point in which Satan got over on Jesus. There was never a point in which Satan said, I won this battle. That this wasn't good God versus evil God, and we just got to wonder who's going to win. No, these were not equals. That at any moment, all God had to do was destroy him. All God had to do was look his direction. All God had to do was to speak a word, and Satan would be no more. No more power, no more existence for that matter. So where would this conflict take place? It says in the wilderness. Now, I know that most of you know this, but when Scripture talks about the wilderness, they don't mean wilderness like we think about it here on the Texas Gulf Coast. This isn't, when I think of wilderness, I, you know, I think of, of, of deep woods or, or, or maybe, even a, maybe even a forest, you know, a place that's just, just, just lots of trees and brush and mosquitoes and all that. But whenever you read about wilderness in the Bible, it's, it's talking about desert. It's talking about places with very little red vegetation, with almost no rain. In fact, the Judean wilderness receives something like less than two inches of rain an entire year. So this was just dry, unforgiving, rocky, lonely, just a, a desolate place. For the first century Palestinian, this was a gloomy place of horror. This was the abode of demons and of, and of thieves and of, and of robbers and of unclean animals. This was not a place that you went for rest and relaxation. Not a place that you would have just gone to hang out. And so Mark tells us that he's there with the wild animals. And, and I don't know why Mark says this. I mean, Mark, Mark is not a guy that just wastes a lot of words, right? He's, he's, he, if Mark says something, there must be some reason why he says it. And yet I still don't, don't fully grasp why he says it. There's, there's, perhaps it's what he's saying is that he's showing us the disposition of even, of even wild animals towards the Son of God. There's, you know, there's, there's portions of Scripture that promise a day when, when infants will play with cobras and when children will, will be able to put their hands into the dens of vipers and, and they won't be struck and they won't be bit. And so perhaps what he's showing is that even, even the wild animals recognize this one as the promised one, the Son of God, this one that will bring peace and unity and reconciliation on earth. But I, I, I tend to believe that probably what he's happening here is he's just showing us that how unforgiving, how un, unwelcoming, how wild, how terrific this place is that Jesus has gone to have this confrontation here. Now, we don't know the exact location in the wilderness. The, the Judean wilderness, it starts like just north of Jericho, and it comes down to like the southern portion of the, of the Dead Sea. It's an area of like 13 by 60 miles, something like that. And so we don't, we don't know exactly where in this wilderness he was, but there, there, are, there are pieces of oasis. There's just kind of these little pockets of oasis there in the wilderness. And Gedi is one, my very favorite place we visited when we went to Israel. Just beautiful. There's a spring, a fall right there in the middle of the wilderness. But as you would go to some of these places, Masada, we'd stand on top of this, this plateau fortress called Masada there in Israel. And every direction you looked, there was just nothing offering forgiveness. No area of, of respite. No area of rest. Really, the only thing that you could see that would offer anything like refreshment, you could see the Dead Sea off in the distance. But even the Dead Sea, you can't drink that. It's 33% salt. For reference, the Gulf of Mexico is like 3% salt. You ain't drinking this water. And so where, this is where we find Jesus now. This is the area in which he's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to combat this evil one. He's going to show his dominance over the evil one. And so 
Throughout Scripture, we read about, I, I talked to you about this several weeks ago, about how God would lead his people into the wilderness, how the wilderness was a place where he met with his people, where he spoke to his people, where he saved his people. In the instance of the Exodus, it was a place where he tested his people. Israel's 40 years to Jesus' 40 days. That he had led his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and he led them through the water, right? You remember this? He took them through the water. They're at the parting of the Red Sea. And then once he took them through the water, he led them by the Spirit through the wilderness. And that there in the wilderness, he tested them. That he he tested them. And so this reality would have come flooding to the minds of of God's people as as they hear this story told. By the way, who told us this story about Jesus in the wilderness? It had to have been Jesus. There was nobody else there. He had to have shared this with some of his disciples. He had to share this truth of what happened. And so as people would have heard this, they would have thought, you know what, this sounds an awful lot like Israel. Because Jesus is the true Israel. That he too came out of Egypt. You remember that, right? Because his parents took him in Egypt, fleeing from Herod. That he too came through the water. We spent the last two weeks talking about the water. That he too is led by the Spirit through the wilderness. And that he too here being tempted by Satan. Satan is tempted, whereby God is testing. And he too was there in the wilderness. It looked exactly like what happened in the life of Israel. He had come to fulfill that promise. He had come to to succeed where Israel had failed, because Israel had failed. They had grumbled, they had griped, they had groaned, they had blasphemed, they had worshipped idols. But Jesus would not. In all perfection, he would fulfill that where Israel had failed. So verse 13 says, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. It's classic Mark, right? Short and sweet to the point. 40 days there, he was tempted. What he doesn't tell us that we read in some of the other Gospels is that he fasted. Fasted from what? Food. But for 40 days? Surely not. Maybe he just fasted from caffeine. Or maybe it was just chocolate. Or maybe it was just the internet. Or maybe it was just his tablet. Or maybe it was, surely he didn't fast for 40 days. But what does the scripture say? You look at the other gospel, he says, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You think? For 40 days, no food. Surely some water, but no food. Well, but Jesus was God. Yes, and he was fully man. With a human body, with human needs. He needed food to survive, and yet 40 days he was there. And we know that his body needed food, even in his, glory, even in his resurrected state. We see after the resurrection, when he reveals himself, he asks the guys, have you got anything to eat? Jesus was hungry. By the way, I'm supposed to insert some obligatory, lame Baptist joke right there about Jesus wanting to eat all the time. I'm not going to do that. But he says there, can you, do you have something to eat because I'm hungry? 40 days with no food. Jesus was really fasting, and he was really hungry. So there's something a little bit weird about the way that this... this this language is phrased, though, in a number of the Gospels because they typically say something like when the 40 days of fasting had ended, Jesus was hungry. And, and almost making it sound like maybe Jesus wasn't hungry until the end of those 40 days. Like maybe he was so in tune with God and so empowered by the Spirit and, and so just, just, just concentrating on what it was that God had sent him there and reliance upon him and in fellowship with him that perhaps he didn't even feel hungry until the end of these 40 days. But he was hungry now. He was hungry now. He was 40 days hungry. 40 days without food hungry. And so in case you wondered, yes, man can go 40 days without food. Mahatma Gandhi at 71 years old, he didn't have a whole, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Mahatma Gandhi. He didn't have a lot of spare uh, body fat to work with here. Skinny dude, 71 years old, only taking sips of water every day. He lived for like 21 days, 24 days, something like that without food. Or there's stories about hunger strikes in prisons in Northern Ireland where these prisoners, they would last anywhere from 46 to 75 days without food before they died. So yes, your body can go for a reasonably healthy man. I would assume for a woman as well. You can go 40 days without water. I'm, no, you can't. Without food. Without food. Only sips of water. 
So this was the setting. This was a place where Jesus would confront the enemy. This is a place where the Son of God would con confront this illegitimate king. It says immediately, immediately after his baptism, he had been recognized, he had been, he had, he had been shown before the world, the world saw the Holy Spirit come upon him, those that were there, they realized that their king had come, and then immediately he was led out in the wilderness. So much hangs in the balance here. If Jesus fails at any point, if he gives in to his hunger, if he gives in to the temptation, if he gives in to Satan, if at one moment he doubts God, if at one moment he turns his back upon God, if at one moment he does anything apart from what God wills, everything falls apart and no one is saved. No one. The perfect lamb of God is no longer the perfect lamb of God. The suitable sacrifice is no longer the suitable sacrifice. All righteousness is not any longer fulfilled. Everything rests in the balance of what's happening right here. Human wisdom would say, well, good, then rest up. Eat up. Surround yourself with your friends. At least take John the Baptist with you. Take somebody that can come alongside you. And why don't you meet him in some more friendly terrain? Because Satan is spirit. Satan doesn't care about the heat. Satan doesn't care about the lack of food. Satan doesn't care about the lack of water. But you're human, Jesus. And so surely you should meet him somewhere else, somewhere that's more friendly. This is not the way that uh, the strategists would write this kind of thing up. This is Rocky Balboa going to fight Ivan Drago on Christmas Day in Moscow, Russia. This is not the way that this thing is supposed to work. And yet this is exactly what Jesus does because he understands that spiritual battles must be prepared for in spiritual ways, much more than physical. And friends, make no mistake, every battle at its root is spiritual. He knew that physical things, they, they weren't the primary focus here. That this was a spiritual battle. He needed to prepare himself spiritually. Now compare this with another meeting between man and the enemy. Think about the garden. Think about Adam and Eve. They didn't. They didn't meet Satan in the wilderness. They met him in a lush garden. They didn't meet him alone. They had each other. They didn't meet him with empty bellies. They had bellies full of food because they could have ate, eaten of any of the fruit that they wanted to eat. These weren't people that had, had been surrounded by sin and temptation. As best we can tell, this was the first ounce of temptation that they had ever felt, and yet they failed. Where Jesus succeeded, they failed. And you know, we like to make excuses for our sins. We like to say, you know what? If only, if only. If only this different circumstances, if only this wouldn't have happened to me when I was a kid, if only I had more time, if only I had more knowledge, if only I had more support, if only I had a better church, if only I had a better wife, if only this or that hadn't happened. No! Your father, Adam, he failed. His nature is your nature. Sin or sin because it's in our nature to sin. At no point can we look around ourselves and say, well, if only. No, we would sin. Even in paradise, we would sin. We would fall, we would fail because that's the desires of our heart. Because that's the nature of who we are as sinful men and women. We sin because we love it. We sin because we don't love God. And there's no amount of external circumstances that's going to make that true. That Jesus is the last Adam, that he would not fail. Where he fulfilled all that was supposed to happen in the life of Israel, where he was the true Israel, he was the last Adam. All that man was meant to be found its fullness in Christ. The picture of humanity, what was it that humanity was meant to be? They found it right here in Christ. Full obedience to the Father fully under the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would not fail. He was meant to be that one that we look to now. No longer do we look to our father, Adam, to see what it means to be human, to be fully man. We look to our brother, Jesus. We see it there in him. So it seems from this language that Jesus was tempted for the entire 40 days, that while we read in, in, in Matthew and Luke these certain temptations, it seems like perhaps he was just swooping in there at the end of these 40 days when Jesus was at his weakest to hit, hit him with his best shots. But that throughout this entire 40 days, he had been tempted. And so Mark calls him Satan, which means the adversary. And he was certainly the adversary. 
He had been opposing God. He had been opposing man from the very beginning. Matthew and Luke, they call him the devil. That means the accuser. He'd been accusing men of breaking laws, accusing men of rebelling against God, accusing men of deserving death. This was the one that was going to be there, and he was going to be he was going to be tempting Jesus for these 40 days. And so it's at this point that people's minds usually go to the question, could Jesus have sinned? Because there's some people that say, you know what? Jesus is God. God cannot sin. Therefore, no, Jesus could not sin. Then there's other people that say, yeah, but you know what? If he couldn't sin, then was it really temptation? If there's no chance for him to give in, then could Jesus have, have really counted this as temptation? The answer, and I don't want to sound too much like Bill Clinton, but the answer depends on how you understand the word could. Like, was there some external force? Was there something external to Jesus which prohibited him from sinning? Was there a chains upon him? Was there some, something outside of himself which prevented him from sinning? And I believe the answer is no. He was fully human. He could have sinned. At any point, he could have turned his back and he could have rebelled against God. At the same time, we're absolutely correct that God cannot sin. God cannot even look upon sin is what scripture tells us. So no, he could not sin. And as one that was not only, not only did he have this divine nature, but even in his human nature, that he had the, whole, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit without measure, that while there was nothing external to God, nothing external to Jesus that prevented him from sin, internally sin was so opposite of his nature. Sin was so despicable to his very nature that even the thought of rebelling against the Father would not happen. It's a little bit like asking me this, Josh, could you kill an innocent puppy? Well, you'll gasp at that, of all the things. Could I kill an innocent? Yeah, I'm, I'm 200 pounds. I can kill a puppy. If there's nobody around to stop me, I can absolutely kill a puppy. But do I have it in me? The thought of it repulsed me. And unlike me, because we see the fullness of the Holy Spirit, because, because we see the Holy Spirit without measure poured upon Jesus, he will not do that which he abhors. He will resist at every point. It's, it, it's also a little bit to me like asking, can a, can, a, can a lost person, can he that doesn't know Christ, can he not sin? Sure he can not sin. He can just stop sinning. You can just stop sinning. Stop doing these bad things that you know are bad, and yet it's not in his nature. It's not in his nature because he's sinful in his nature, and he's going to continue to return to this. And so I think this is how we can reconcile some seemingly paradoxical statements, like Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then at the same time, we can read James 1.13 that says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God in his humanity, absolutely, he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he was held up, he was strengthened, he was empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. In his divinity, no, never tempted at any point, nor does he tempt anyone else. I think this is right. Maybe it's not right. I don't know. I reserve the right to come back and tell you it's not right if it's not right. But this is, this is the picture of what's happening here, that he's being tempted. And, and again, Mark, Matthew and Luke, they give us some, they give us some spe specific temptations that we see there. Matthew 4, 3 says this. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. How is that even a temptation? How is bread a temptation? He didn't say be gluttonous. He didn't say go eat a thousand ro uh, rocks made into bread. Jesus was hungry. It's not a sin to eat. It's not a sin to eat at the end of 40 days. It's not even a sin to use supernatural power to produce food so, uh, food so that you can eat. But that wasn't what Satan was after here. This wasn't really about bread. After 40 days, Satan saw that Jesus was hungry, and he thought, I can use this hunger to my advantage. Perhaps I can use this, this, this hunger to tempt him in some special way. And so he says here, if you are the son of God, 
as we just said, Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't believe that he's doubting it here. And he knows that Jesus knows he's the Son of God. I don't think he's trying to get Jesus to doubt it. I think a better way of saying this is since you are the Son of God, because you are the Son of God, that what he's saying here is, Jesus, we both know that you're the Son of God. Why then don't you exercise your deity? Why don't you execute your prerogative? Why are you standing here hungry? Look at Israel. Look at physical Israel. They rebelled against God. They spit in his face. Moses wasn't on the mountain 40 days, and they had already turned their back on him. The ink wasn't even dry on the covenant, and they were worshiping idols. They were creating idols, and then they were worshiping idols, and your father fed them. Every day he fed them, and you stand here starving. You're the son of God. Why would he not feed you? How can you believe that he loves you, that he allows you to stand here and starve like this? What good does it do to be the son of God if he won't even give you some bread to eat? And what good does it do for you to be God if you won't then produce that bread? Do it. Reach out your hand and make some bread. Why would you stand here and starve? Knowing that your father loves you. Knowing that you've got the ability to bring this to, to pass. Your God, start acting like it. That was the temptation. He was tempting him to do the thing that he had laid aside. He had said, I will not grasp equality with God. He had emptied himself. He had agreed that... It, he would only do that which God willed and that which was empowered by the Spirit. And Satan knew that if he could get him to act upon his own prerogative, to demand his own way, to exercise his own authority, that the battle was won. Satan had won and it was it. It was all over. So here's the deal. Satan tempts us at points of our strength and our gifting. Like for Satan to come to me and say, Josh, you should make those rocks into loaves of bread, I wouldn't even flinch because I know I can't do it. That's not a temptation for me. But what he can do is he can cause me to doubt the goodness of God. He can cause me to doubt that God truly loves me, that God truly wants what's good for my life. This is the exact same thing that he did with Eve there in the garden. God's withholding the good things from you, Eve. He's holding the good things behind his back. He's keeping the good things in the back of the shop, and he's not putting them out front for you. You can't have the good things. You call him your father. You call him your father. You know that he loves you, and yet he won't give you these things. Why would he let you suffer like this? What good does it do to follow God? What good does it do to honor God? What good does it do to obey God if he won't meet your needs? If he'll allow you to stand here and starve? If he'll allow you to suffer like this? Look around at your life. Compare it to the pagans. Compare it to those that blaspheme God. They're sitting around enjoying the good gifts of God while you're going without because you want to honor him. Because you want to obey him. Because you want to wait for him. There's another way. You don't have to do it God's way. The gifts are there and you've got the ability, so reach out your hand and take it. Quit waiting for God. Quit obeying God. Why would you honor this God that allows you to go without? And then listen to Jesus' answer. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the answer is, I don't live because of bread. He, he quotes scripture, and yes, it's, it, this is another illustration for why we must hide God's word in our heart. We must know God's word because with each of these temptations, he's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, first eight and then verse six, uh, chapter six. He's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy in this time when Israel was there in the, in the wilderness being tempted. And so yes, certainly it's, it's scripture, but we can't miss the meaning behind this scripture. We can't miss why he used this scripture. He's saying, Satan, you really think I owe my life to bread? You think I'm alive because of bread? I'm alive because God wills it. Neighbor, never forget that. You're alive for one reason and one reason only, because the God of the universe chose to make it so. Not only your creation, but your sustained existence, only because of his good grace, only because of his mercy and his love, and because it is his choice. 
So Satan is going to tempt us. He's going to say, look, you need to look to the means. You need to look to the ordinary means by which God keeps you alive, and you need to focus on that. It must be the bread. It must be the shelter. It must be the clothes. He wants you to look at the gifts, and he wants you to look at the means and not look at the one that sustained us. So then while we're so focused on those things, we're just obsessed with them so that when we think the Father isn't giving us what we need or what we deserve, we reach out our hand and we take it. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his willingness. We doubt his love. And we reach out and we grasp that that we want in ways that he hadn't called us to do this. Keep in mind now, the only reason Satan still exists, God's grace. You ever thought about that? God hadn't destroyed Satan yet. That's grace. If anybody's received grace, is that not him? He's looking at me saying, no, we're alive because of the Father that's in heaven. We're alive because God has chosen to make it so. So that when you look around yourself and you think that you're going without, we don't look at the stuff, we look at the one. We look at him. We say, God, if you want me to have bread, I'll have bread. If you don't, then I won't. But then we set our hearts now, today, that when that temptation comes, we're going to look to him and we're going to trust in him and we're going to trust his goodness. We're going to trust his love. That's why we sing of his goodness. That's why we share reports of his love. To build each other up because the day is coming. Dear friends, the day is coming. Scripture promises us. Revelation 13 says that there's going to be a time when the the last days of the last days when no man will buy bread, no man will sell bread, no man will trade, no man will do anything apart from the mark of the beast. That we'll be given a very real opportunity, a very real choice. Receive the mark of the beast and eat. Don't and you don't. And we stand here today and we go, no way, I would never receive the mark of the beast. Okay, but what about when that man comes to your door and your children are starving? He says, does your God really want you to die? Does your God really want you to not receive? Does your God want your children to die? Will you stand here and claim the goodness and the love of God while your children starve to death? We must determine in our heart today that we say yes. If our Father wants us to eat, we eat. If he doesn't want us to eat, we don't. But we never once reach out our hand and take out that which he hadn't called for us. We never once go around him to grab his gifts. That at all times and all ways, at every moment, we're looking to him. We're trusting in him. While we wake up, that's why we thank God for every gift that he's given us. It's, it's your breath in our lungs. It's your blood in our veins. It's your food in our belly. It's your thoughts in my mind. It's your sight in my eyes. It's you're the one that sustains us at every point. I'm not going to believe these things sustain us in some way. I've got to fly now. But So verse, verse 5 in, 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 in Matthew's gospel, he says this. Then the devil took him to the Holy This is Matthew 5, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest not you strike your foot against a stone. And so he's saying, fair enough, Jesus, if you won't do your God tricks, why don't you force God's hand? If you won't do your tricks, if you won't act as God, why don't you force the Father to act like God? You're the son of God, he can't let you die. If you jump from this pinnacle, you're a human, you'll die. But he will send his angels. He said in his word, twisting scripture, right? Twisting scripture, twisting God's word. To say, listen, why don't you presume upon God? That's the temptation here. His first temptation is that we would doubt the goodness, that we would doubt the love of God. The second is to presume upon God. It's to force God's hand. It's to look to God and say, God, I'm your child. Remember I said that prayer? Remember I took that baptism? I'm your child, so I'm going to go live however I want. There should be no consequences for me because I'm your child. I should be able to disobey you at every turn. And then when bad things happen to me, I throw my hands up and go, oh, man, this world is tough. So that when I don't raise my, chi- my children to know and to love and to honor and to, and to res- 
to respect the Lord and respect his word, then I'm then shocked when they wander away and have nothing to do with me. When I don't take care of my body and my body falls apart, I go, oh, what, what has befallen me? My body isn't working, God. Won't you just do something? Why aren't you healing me now? And I show up late at work and I lose my job and I go, oh, man, I'm suffering too. I must be Job. Look at me, the righteous dude. I've lost my job. No, you're a sorry worker, so you got fired. This is the truth behind God's word that, yes, he's a good God, and yes, he protects, and yes, he provides. But number one, that he owes us nothing, and number two, that we don't get to presume upon that goodness. That we don't get to be foolish with our lives. We don't get to go places that he hadn't led us. Remember now, Jesus wasn't in the wilderness on his own. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. God had affirmed his love for him at the coronation. He had said, this is my son, my beloved. Jesus wasn't there in opposition to the Father. He wasn't going somewhere to force God's hand. He was exactly where God had led him. So Jesus says, yet again, verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. First of all, the kingdoms of earth are not Satan's to give away. He doesn't own squat. He had been given the authority to reign for a bit. He had been allowed to be the prince of the power, the God of this generation. Yet it's all God's. God had never lost control at any point. He tells him, if you will just bow down and worship me, Jesus, I will give you all these kingdoms. That's all Satan ever wanted. From the very beginning, that's what Satan wanted was to be worshipped. That's what got him in this mess in the first place. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted to be honored as God. So that's what he's saying here. Same thing he's been saying for 6,000 years. He's been saying to humans, he's been saying, listen, if you would just worship me. And so he's not, he's smart, right? He's, he's not so silly as to show up as Satan, is he? He doesn't show up and go, I'm Satan, won't you worship me? No, he presents things that are not God. Things that lead you away from true, true worship to God. Those are things which lead you to him. He wraps himself in light. He tries, to, he tries to present himself as good things. Your children, your marriage, your career, your church, your service, your health, your food, your money, your house, whatever it is. Would you just worship these things? Would you just bow down and worship these things and you'll have all the kingdoms of the world? Anything this world has offered, you could have it if you would just worship these things and stop going after this God. This God that I don't even know he's that good anyway because look at the way that you suffer. And so, you notice here that the temptation for Jesus was not to give up his throne. And it was not to give up his power or his honor, his glory. The temptation was to give up his humility. He was saying, Jesus, I will give you all these things, but you've got to act outside of God. So the temptation here is that you act outside of God's will. You worship someone other than God, and then I will give you all these. And of course, Jesus didn't come just to have the kingdoms of earth. It, all will be his. New heavens, new earth, all of it. He will reign over all of it. He will be glorified by all of it. He will be worshipped worshipped. He will be worshipped by all of it in the end. But his path to that was going to be one of great suffering. That he didn't come to serve, he came to be served. And the path to all this, the way that he was going to fulfill all this, was going to be through suffering. And so that's really what the temptation was here. That Satan was looking to Jesus and he was saying, Why would you suffer? You're the Son of God. Why would you suffer for these people? The glory that you have earned, the glory that you deserve, the glory that, you, that is yours, why would you suffer so that they could receive it? Why would you suffer for the sake of those that blaspheme you and spit in your face? Why would you suffer? I can give you the glory without the suffering. Bow your knee, worship me, glory with no suffering, it's guaranteed it will come. That's the temptation here. He saved his best shot for last. This really is. It's a temptation that you know. I know you know it because I know it. 
The temptation to avoid suffering and get straight to the glory. This has been a kind of a recurring verse for us. I feel like I've come back to it, if not once a week, about every other week. We keep coming back to Romans 8, 17. If we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you are children, if you are God's children by adoption, if you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, you will come into glory with him. You too will enjoy glory with him if, only if you suffer with him. And dear friends, this life is guaranteed to be one full of suffering. You will suffer. That's never the question is will you suffer or will you not suffer? This life is full of suffering. The question is, will you suffer alone? Will you suffer because of your sin? Will you suffer because you're living in enmity with God? Will you suffer always wondering if you're suffering as punishment leading to destruction? Or will you suffer as his? Will you suffer with Christ? Will you suffer keeping your eyes fixed on him at all times, the one that knew temptation like you have never known? Dear friends, don't ever get this twisted. We think, well, because Jesus didn't sin, he doesn't really know the temptation. No, nobody knows temptation better than Jesus because he endured through all of it. Don't ask me about the temptation of a dozen donuts. I don't know because I always give in. The temptation is not heavy upon me. I just give in to my sin. But Jesus endured to the very end. He knows temptation like you would never know because he perfectly endured to the end. Tempted as you were in every single way and never once gave an inch. Never a thought, never a, never a spoken word, never an action, never an attitude that didn't honor God. It wasn't in accordance with God's will. Never at any point. So we keep our eyes fixed on him, trusting that we're joined with him. That his righteousness, that the righteousness there in the, in, in the wilderness, his righteousness leading all the way up to the Christ, that that has been credited to us, it has been reckoned to us that we are joined with him in his death and in his resurrection, that we can keep our eyes fixed on him knowing that the enemy that he punched in the mouth, the enemy that he ultimately destroyed, the enemy that he has set us free from, he has no hold over us. That there is no temptation which has overtaken you that you can't stand, not because of yourself, because he's provided a way out. That we don't ever get to look around and go, God, you couldn't have seen this coming. Surely you can't do anything with this. This must be some new temptation. He says, no, it's common to man. The same temptations you feel today are the ones that your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather and Adam felt. Those same temptations have always been upon us, and yet he's allowed us a way of escape. There's only one way of escape, and it's keeping our eyes fixed on him. You don't look at the stuff. You don't look at the temptation. You look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. You keep your eyes fixed on him. You keep your, your chest glued to his back, and you just hold on tight. You say, Father, just lead me through this. Jesus, lead me through this, because I don't have the ability in myself. I don't even know that I want to resist this sin. I love sin. Sin's fun. Sin brings me temporary pleasure. And I'm like a stupid kid making mud pies. I can't even understand the goodness that God has to offer. So I'm going to take this trash right here, this sin, this stuff, because it's immediate. It fills up my belly. Like Turkish delight, it fills up my belly today, but then I go sick tomorrow. And I wish I hadn't done this. We keep our eyes fixed on him. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that you you didn't leave us where we were at. You didn't leave us to die in solitude and separation and slavery to sin. But you sent your son that he would, he too would be tempted as we are in every way. We thank you that he overcame. We thank you that he is our champion. We thank you that he has not only purchased for us citizenship in heaven within his kingdom, but that he has defeated the illegitimate king, he who held us slave. We look forward to that day when he will ultimately destroy him once and for all. 
We know, Father, that we live today in enemy territory. We live in a place surrounded by a very real enemy that wants nothing more to destroy our souls. And so, Father, we pray that you would protect us from him. We pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to resist. We pray that you would give us the ability to keep our eyes fixed on the one that overcame. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified through those good works, through our lights that shine as a result of the victories that you win through us. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.